Well, praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's continue our worship now as we open up to God's holy and inspired word, Genesis chapter 3. This will be our last sermon in Genesis before we break for the summer to consider the Psalms. Then we'll get back to it in the fall. Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at verses 17. Oops, that's Colossians. Other end of the Bible here. 17 through the end of the chapter. Um, But we're not going to consider 20 through and 21 because Chris already did that last week. So uh, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 3. Verses 17 through the end of the chapter. This is God's word. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. Then Yahweh God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife. He clothed them. Then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, also, and now, excuse me, lest he take forth his hand, excuse me, lest he send forth his hand and take also from the tree of life and live forever. Therefore, Yahweh God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim. And the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Our Father, we pray that you would be blessed by the reading of, this wor- of your word and be glorified in our time. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. You know what that word grace means? Uh, Most theologians and scholars would define it as undeserved favor. Showing favor to someone who doesn't really deserve favor. That's grace. What makes God's grace matchless grace, though? I mean, all of us can show grace as well, right? We can show favor to those who really don't deserve favor, right? In fact, we've very likely been shown favor by someone else, knowing full well we didn't deserve favor. So what's the difference then with divine favor? Why sing that song? Why, why sing those words? Why, why cling to those words? What's, what's so great? What's so marvelous about the grace of our loving Lord? Well, simply put, what makes God's grace so marvelous and really matchless, unparalleled even, is that He demonstrates his love and favor, not only to those who don't deserve love and favor, but actually he demonstrates his love and favor to those who deserve the exact opposite. He he demonstrates his love and favor to those who actually deserve nothing but divine wrath and condemnation. We've talked a lot about this word deserve 
over the past couple of months. So we've heard of a lot of the objections to the biblical doctrine of total depravity or absolute inability. A lot of issue being taken with not only our being desperately sick, but in fact dead in our trespasses and sins, our being born of a corrupted seed, absolutely and totally spiritually bankrupt as a result of our being descendants of the one man, Adam. A lot of pushback on this doctrine in mainstream evangelicalism. Also a lot of pushback on the biblical teaching of the damnation of everlasting souls of unbelieving men and women to hell for all of eternity, with perhaps the most common rebuttals being, well, God is love. And as far as I'm concerned, a loving God would never allow for bad things to happen to good people, certainly not eternal torment in hell. Or, you know, a loving God would never choose to save this person while choosing to not save this person. To do so would not only be a threat to our human sovereignty, but it would go against my understanding of God's gracious nature, which, if we're being honest, puts an obligation upon God to extend his forgiveness and grace to all men. Grace, which is then made effectual for those who choose to accept him. Anything short of that would not be what? Fair. That's not fair. Obligated? Deserve? Fair? We got to get these words out of our apologetic vocabulary. I'm here to tell you this morning, human beings don't want what's fair. We don't want what we truly deserve. It's clear from this third chapter and the tragic results of the fall of mankind that first and foremost, foremost, there are no good people. There are no good people. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short of the glory, glory of this holy, holy, infinitely holy God. We've all transgressed his perfectly holy law. We've all failed to live up to his perfect standards and perfect expectations for our lives. And therefore, we are all deserving of nothing more than his divine wrath and judgment. Fair? Obligated? Well, in light of that truth, in light of the truth that there are no good people, the mere fact that in his amazing, marvelous grace and good pleasure, he has sovereignly determined to save any of us through no doing of our own should greatly outweigh the reality that the, the truth that he is also sovereignly determined to pass over others, okay? And he passed over them by simply leaving them in their natural, fallen, God-hating condition, a, a condition which we were all in before he graciously intervened in our lives, right? Meaning, he was under no obligation to save anyone at all, yet He has graciously chosen to save some, delivering us from the just penalty that we all deserved and would have experienced had it not been for the divine favor in the sending of his son to redeem, restore, and reconcile his people to himself through his sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection for sinners. That sounds like amazing grace to me. Doesn't it to you? Praiseworthy even. Yet, 
Some professing Christians seem hell-bent on distorting this reality by throwing around words like fair and deserve. But you see, our being undeserving is what the very thing that makes divine grace so marvelous. That's what makes it so amazing. That not only were we undeserving of such favor, but in fact, if we're honest, we know that we deserve the exact opposite. We sang it last week. Alas, and did my Savior bleed. Did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? That's offensive. (laughs) Perhaps to the flesh. The divine son of God being sent into the world to pay the sin debt of the many to suffer and die on a Roman cross for those who were his enemies. His enemies, all these enemies who would hear his call and then come to him not by their mostly good nature or by their good deeds, but by faith alone in his sacrificial death alone? Oh, how foolish that is. Perhaps to those who are perishing, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God, truly saved, not just with our lips, but with our hearts. But to those who are being saved, it's the amazing grace of God, a grace which could only come from God, and we know it. That's why we sing marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe, all who are longing to see his face. Will you this moment his grace receive? And that's the question. Will you receive such undeserved favor? Or, as has been said, are you a good person who just needs a little bit of God's help to be great? We'll come back to that later. Before we do, I want to look at this matchless, infinite, divine grace extended to us sinful men and women, even from the beginning. We spend a lot of time considering... uh, judgment and sentencing in Genesis chapter 3, a lot of time considering the curse on the serpent, uh, the sentencing of the woman. Then conveniently, we didn't leave enough time to consider the sentencing of the man. Uh, Well, we're going to hit it this morning. Last time we talked about divine mercy, right? Divine mercy, even compassion being extended in the midst of judgment. In other words, it's not going to be as bad as it could have been. You will have enmity with the serpent, but Eve... One will come from your line who will crush his head. You will have pain in childbirth, mom, but your sorrow will be turned to joy the moment that sweet babe is resting upon your chest. There will be conflict in marriage, strife in marriage. You will want to control your husband, but he will dominate you. Yet there is hope. There is a reprieve. There is mercy offered in the transforming power of God's word and the gospel. In other words, the punishment isn't as bad as it could have been. Here in verse 17, we see the same thing with Adam. Divine mercy and divine grace being extended in the midst of divine judgment. Look with me now at verse 17. Then to Adam he said, this is Yahweh, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground. Okay, stop right there. First of all, Before we even got into the fall of man, even before we went from total delight to total depravity, did we see divine grace on display in Yahweh's creation of the world? 
Absolutely. Remember, days one through six. It's true. All things were created by our Lord, for our Lord, and through our Lord. But don't forget, man was the pinnacle or crown of God's creative work. And really, everything that was created was created around man living on and inhabiting this earth, including being created in the very image of God. Now, did the first man deserve such an honor as that? Did did he deserve such a glorious environment to not only survive in, but also thrive in? No, of course not. What did Adam do to deserve such favor? One minute, he's a pile of dirt. The next minute, he had the breath of life blown into his nostrils. Not only this, but he was given work, joyful, fruitful, satisfying, perfect work. Name these animals. Cultivate this magnificent garden with no struggle. All these trees, they're for you. Oh, by the way, I'm not going to make you marry a porcupine. Here's a beautiful woman for you. It's not good for you to be alone, Adam. Here's a helpmate suitable for you, my son. So tell me, what are you going to name her? Adam says, well, she's, she's not like the animals. She's like me. I will name her Isha. Because she was taken out of Ish, man. I will name her woman. God, you are so good to me. What, what did I do to deserve all this? Answer, diddly squat. <laughs> Nothing. Well, that's divine favor. That's divine grace. But as James Boyce said, this is not the way the Bible usually speaks of God's grace. For the simple reason that the fullness of grace is seen only against the black backdrop of sin. In Adam's case, it's seen in God's gentle dealing with him following the fallen and the promise of a deliverer to come. Later, it's seen as God's continuing care of the people of Israel in spite of their constant wandering from him. Above all, it is seen at the cross of Christ where in spite of the sin of man and hounding the Lord Jesus Christ to death by crucifixion, God was never less providing the basis by which all who call on the name of the Lord might be saved. Grace actually means that God has provided for us in every possible way, both physically and spiritually, in spite of the condemnation that we deserve. Well, we spent over eight weeks going over just that, so there's no need to rehash. It's all right there in that chapter. You can read it. Plus, it's clear what happened uh, from the opening words of verse 17. Yahweh says, you listen to her instead of me. Satan listened to his prideful heart. The woman listened to Satan. You listened to the woman, and nobody listened to me. Because of this, because you obeyed her word instead of my word, because you not only abandoned your role as the head of this union and failed to protect your wife from deception, but then willingly disobeyed, deliberately disobeyed my command, I'm killing all three of you. Sentencing you to hell right away. No more humanity. In fact, I'm throwing the whole of creation and all my perfect decrees concerning life on earth into the eternal garbage heap. Going back to my perfect eternal existence and everlasting glory. Is that what he said? No, that's right, young man. But could he have said that? Yeah, sure he could have. And would he have been absolutely justified in doing so? Sure. We'll see it next week in Psalm 51 where David says, you are justified when you speak. 
pure when you judge, always. He's a just judge. Always, perfectly, infinitely just. Never makes an unjust decision. He would have been absolutely justified in killing Adam and Eve the moment they sinned against him, but that's not what happened, is it? He didn't even curse Adam. He cursed the ground. Just like he didn't curse Eve directly, but only certain elements of Eve's life. I mean, they would be fallen. They would be sinful. The the seed, the the line of Adam would be corrupted, cursed in the sense that we would all be conceived in and born in Adam's now woefully depraved and totally corrupted nature. We would all be born as Adam now was an enemy of God. Yet, look at the mercy and grace. Because you have done this, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. You will eat the plants of the field, but the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. Divine mercy, not cursed are you, but rather cursed is the ground. Divine grace, Adam, you are now my enemy. You are tainted, corrupted. We are separated. You are guilty and ashamed. You know you're naked because you know you're a sinner deserving of death. And death has come. Spiritually speaking, we're separated. But you will live physically. And we know this because God still gives him food. Look at those three words. You will eat. You will eat. I will graciously do you the favor, even you, of giving you food. Adam will live physically until that time when ultimately, as we'll see, he has the opportunity to live again spiritually. That's divine grace. However, that doesn't mean that Adam's life would be without pain. In pain, you will eat. In fact, the rest of Adam's life on earth would be painful, meaning... While the eternal consequences of sin for both Adam and Eve and all of God's people would be covered in divine grace, the effects of sin for Adam and all who would descend from Adam remains. Consequences, eternally, done away with. As the Christ would come. The effects of sin, however, how he still has to deal with the ramifications of his actions still remain. The curse upon this earth, the curse upon the Ground still remains. Same for us, right? The the eternal consequences of sin are gone. They were paid for at the cross. But the effects, the effects of our sin still remain. For Adam, you will work, you will toil, you you will labor in pain. As we learned a couple weeks ago, at Sebeth, in sorrow, you will eat of this cursed ground, and sorrow, uh, extracting your food from this ground will be a painful experience, not just for several days, by the way, not just for nine months, not just for a season, but for the rest of your life. This is your love. The, the delightful garden is a thing of the past. Perfect propagation, perfect cultivation, poof, gone, just like that. Now, the esev, the plants, the post-fall vegetation, which required both man's work and cultivation along with God's provision of rain to then spring up or be produced. Grain, wheat for bread, other types of edible plant life. Plants that would now be entangled by the siach. Remember that? The, the shrubs 
thorns and thistles, post-fall weeds, we learned about back in chapter 2, useless, invasive, sometimes toxic vegetation that's mixed in with the food. This is a curse that still plagues us even today. Though compared to uh, world history, we're actually in a tremendously bountiful period in terms of crop production and and cultivation. The the lives of 7.8 billion people living on earth at this moment are all being sustained by food. Some who have far too much, some who have far too little, yet all living based on the cultivation and production of crops. And while it may not be us out there in the grind, uh, someone's out there laboring, right? Uh, preparing the soil, sowing seeds, irrigating, applying manure and fertilizer and pesticides, harvesting the crops, storing the crops, transporting the crops. Someone's sweating. Someone's doing the sweating. They don't make that stuff at the grocery store. Uh, someone's toiling in sorrow. Someone's out there battling those thorns and thistles. Which, by the way, those thorns and thistles, they should be a constant reminder of Genesis 3.17, this, this curse. What's the one thing that grows in abundance that doesn't require our toil, our labor, and painful sorrow? Dandelions. Yeah, that's right. Weeds. So annoying. Greta's weed. You remember Greta's weed out in front of my house. She's taking a whole bottle of Roundup right to the dome. And she's still going strong. You know, there's the shopping center over off Federal and Bellevue. My buddies and I used to go biking through and rollerblading through back when it was appropriate for men to rollerblade. <laughs> there was this uh, strip mall over there. And I can remember when I was a kid, full of life, full of action, hustle and bustle, uh, full of all these shops. Yeah. A couple of years ago, they knocked it all down. They put some fences around it. Nobody's been over there since. And if you drive by it today, you'll notice it looks like the Congo. It has these monster weeds sprouting up, weeds that have burst through the pavement, burst through the cracks in the pavement. I don't know if they were dropped by wind or by birds, just, you know, or, or seeds that were already in the ground from years before being prepared for this very moment in, in, as, as a reminder Yes, they are so annoying. (laughs) Being prepared for this very moment in Genesis as a constant reminder to us of this curse. Every time you see a weed, you should think of this curse. Both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you, God says. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. The grace is evident here. God allows man to eat for his physical life to be sustained, even from this cursed ground. He gets bread, wheat, grain, wonderful vegetables, carrots, broccoli, zucchini, everybody's favorite, potatoes, prolonging his temporal life so that he might be able to, in his divine forbearance, draw his people to himself. You see, he sustains us until he can draw us. Well, someone says, uh, well, even those who live their whole lives hating God and then die in their sins get to eat. And that's true. That's common grace. That's called common grace. Rain falls on the just and the unjust alike, right? There's a special grace for the believer. Not only does Yahweh sustain our physical lives in order to regenerate us or save us at some point, but 
He even allows our work, our painful toil and labor, even our sweating to be satisfying, sanctifying, ultimately rewarding. Not only here, but in the life to come, we can glorify the Lord in our work, can't we? We can store up treasures for ourselves in heaven through our work and our being witnesses in our workplace, working as unto the Lord, no matter where that might be, from the homemaker to the accountant to the plumber, electrician, the checkout clerk, a farmer, of course, no matter how we toil, we can do all things for the glory of Christ, leading to our receiving an eternal reward, even us who were his enemies. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, right? Well, what about point three? What about the last part of verse 19? What about divine grace in the grave? Yahweh said, by the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you are taken, for you are dust, to dust you shall return. This, of course, speaks of physical death. Again, there's some mercy in the fact that the Lord didn't strike them dead right away, but allowed them to keep on living, 930 years for Adam, to be exact. And There was divine grace in that he allowed him to live, enjoying many of the same favors and blessings that we all enjoy even today. Life, health, love, marriage, intimate relations with our wives, the blessing of children then, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. In Adam's case, great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren who throughout nine centuries could have all been at the family picnic at the same time. Imagine the family photo. Had to be some wide lens. Surely Adam enjoyed laughter, good times, good meals, even times of good fellowship and worship of Yahweh his God, right? Of course, there were valley periods. You know he had valley periods. Think of Cain. A chapter from now, we'll get into that. He has valley periods just like us, but I can't help but think that there were some wonderful peaks as well and some Wonderful instruction that he was able to give to his children and his grandchildren. Like, boy, your grandma really did a number on us when she took that fruit, didn't she? (laughs) Nah, I don't think he said that. I think he said this. I did a number on us. That thing that happened with your Uncle Cain, that was because of me. In fact... All the heartache and toil and suffering in our lives, that was me. Because I disobeyed my creator. My sons, my daughters, always heed, always obey the words of your creator. Now that's speculation, of course. There's no way of proving he said that, that these were realities in Adam's life, but I know that we fathers here have been graciously afforded the opportunity to speak this wisdom into the lives of our kids and our grandkids, right? So why wouldn't he? Beyond that, though, there's a certain grace in perishing from this earth. Now, for the unbelieving, unregenerate man or woman, this is a terrifying reality. That's why they don't want to die. They'll do anything to stay alive. For the believer, however, this is both mercy and divine grace, a mercy in that we don't have to live forever in this corrupted condition 
with these ailing and fleeting bodies and this ailing and fleeting earth. And it's a grace and that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Amen? The moment these old tents are taken down and placed back into the dust from which man was created, if that's not humbling, I don't know what is, our unclothed souls appear in glory. 2 Corinthians 5. The very instant that we perish from this earth, we are together forever with our Creator in a place where there is no more death, where there is no more pain, no more sorrow, toil, or tragedy even. At first glance, this 19th verse looks like an ominous judgment, and a, gr- a grim sentencing, and it is. We ought not to glorify death. It's unnatural. It comes as a result of this curse, but there is for the child of God grace, mercy, as the sting of death, which is sin, has been removed. But how? By the removal of the power of the law. How is the power of the law removed? Answer, by the one who filled the law in its entirety, yet willingly gave himself a sacrifice for those who were absolutely incapable totally incapable of keeping it themselves as they were born enslaved to their own sin nature. We were born in slavery and bondage to our own sin until this one came. This one who, of course, as Chris faithfully preached last week, the one who atoned for our sin, who clothed us, who covered us in his righteousness, the one whose blood was shed, who bore the separation from his father for the first time in all of eternity so that all those whom he called to himself would never have to be. The one who we see again, I say with utmost confidence, in verse 22, where Moses writes, Then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. This man has become like one of us. One of us, we spent a whole week on this word us back in Genesis chapter 1. I don't know if you remember that. So who is us? The plural form of El, Elohim, is used throughout the first chapter as describing the creator God Almighty, leading some to say, well, this is just a royal title, a majestic title for God, the royal us, the royal we. You remember that? Others say... The us here is God referring to the angels, to the, to the heavenly host. Behold, angels, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. But what we determined is that such an interpretation of this text might only make sense if we had just this book and not the rest of Yahweh's special revelation of himself, including in his Son, The Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world, the light of the life of men who walked among us as God in human flesh. The angels didn't know good and evil the way that God knew good and evil. Nobody knows good and evil to that extent. That would require an infinite knowledge, right? An infinite omniscience. Do you have that knowledge? Do you have that knowledge? I don't have that knowledge. Now, sin-filled men and women don't have that knowledge. They didn't know evil as God knew evil. Sure, they knew good and evil. It says so right there. Satan's promise was half true, but they didn't know good and evil like God knew good and evil. Uh, 
They knew it experientially, but, but not omnisciently. Uh, they, they experienced good and evil. They were impacted personally by evil. They were enslaved to evil, but they didn't have all knowledge or infinite knowledge of good and evil. Neither do the angels, right? Not the angels in heaven, not fallen angels cast down to the earth, including Lucifer. They didn't have omniscient knowledge of good and evil. No, no, I'm, I'm convinced by the rest of Scripture that this is another reference to the divine trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we have the privilege of being granted special access into the, a heavenly conversation between the eternal Godhead, three in one. And what's said here is astonishing. In fact, I always looked at it and thought, that seems like an unfinished sentence there. Like we're left with a cliffhanger here. That's exactly right. The Hebrew is unfinished. I knew it was unfinished, but I never knew why it was unfinished. Look again at verse 22. Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. Now, lest he send forth his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And then it just ends. Just like that. Almost as if to say, listen, the sheer thought of man being allowed to now, in his current state, go back to the other tree, the tree of life, and eat of it, and in doing so, remain in this now spiritually dead condition forever is so terrifying, so horrendous, so abhorrent, that God's not even going to finish the thought. We don't even want to talk about this. It would be the tragedy of all tragedies to live forever physically, in the state that Adam was in the moment that he ate of that tree, with then no hope of redemption. And then to have his seed, all his posterity, born into the same hopeless condition, the same hopeless state. Do you understand why this is so terrifying? Again, sin separates man from God. <clears throat> if Adam and Eve would have taken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and had their eyes open, saw that they were naked and then fled to the tree of life and ate of it, they would have lived forever physically in the condition we were all in pre-redemption, pre-salvation, physically alive but spiritually dead forever. Physically alive but totally depraved forever. Whatever this tree is, this tree of life, it's in Revelation 22 as well, <clears throat> it's, it's capable of, of sustaining life forever. And if Adam and Eve would have partaken of it, as one commentator said, not only would paradise have been lost, but so would have been the opportunity for redemption and reconciliation. That's right. Where would the, the promise be, which was so mercifully nestled, uh, nestled into, into these judgments here? Eternal life would have already been obtained, physically speaking. But we would have all been dead on the inside with no hope of being born again to spiritual life. Unthinkable. This is unthinkable. Praise the Lord it didn't happen this way. Praise the Lord that in his divine sovereignty, he got to them first. Praise the Lord for his amazing grace of the first mention of the gospel in verse 15. Serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. The first gospel, right there in the garden. 
One will come, Yahweh says. He will defeat the power of the enemy. He will conquer this sin and spiritual death. He will achieve this restoration and reconciliation of a holy God to sinful man through his death, burial, and resurrection. He will accomplish redemption for those who are his. And he's coming. He's coming, Eve. He's coming, Adam. Believe my word, says Yahweh. He is coming. Think of all the people born into this world saved by the promise who wouldn't have been saved had Adam and Eve made it to the tree of life. The Old Testament saints who came before Christ, believing God's word, looked forward to the one to come. Uh, The New Testament saints, including all of us here today, who can look back to his coming. He did come. We can look back to his being sent into the world, his being born of a woman, born of a virgin, his being born under the law, yet his keeping the law perfectly. Where he failed, excuse me, where we failed, he prevailed. His living a perfect, sinless, spotless life, but having his heel bruised by the enemy as he was delivered up to death as a substitute for the enemies of God. That all wouldn't happen if they had eaten of that tree of life. But they didn't eat of it, did they? And the promise was fulfilled. And God's Christ did come. And multitudes have been saved, reconciled to a holy God through this perfect plan of redemption. And multitudes will be in glory forevermore, giving Yahweh God alone the praise and worship and honor due his name because of the divine grace displayed in his glorious gospel promise. The gospel of marvelous, infinite, matchless grace that is only able to be provided by God himself. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace that he freely bestows on all who what? Believe. Believe. All who believe his word. Are you one of those? Will you believe his word? Will you believe his promise of the only hope of reconciliation? Will you come through the only way that has been provided by Christ hanging on that tree? Will you at this moment, if you never have before, receive his favor and believe in this glorious gospel of grace, this gospel of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. The one who comes to me, I will never cast out. Are you one of those? Have you been a recipient of this glorious, matchless, divine grace? That's what I'm asking. If not, I invite you to do so this morning. I invite you to do so today. Now, having said all that, there was a casting out, wasn't there? Adam and Eve were cast out of this garden, but don't forget, it was in order to preserve the promise. And I want to look at just how seriously the Lord takes the securing of this tree. Verse 23, Therefore Yahweh God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. Boom, there's that cursed ground. It's right there. Now the celestial guardians. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim, the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. How seriously does God take guarding this tree? Again, the same tree in Revelation 22, the eternal garden. He puts his best angels on the job, the cherubim who almost always had the duty of protecting the throne of God 
the holiness of God and the glory of God. One commentator called them God's secret service. I think that's a little bit cheesy. Nevertheless, the point remains. Their role is crucial. Crucial. Exodus 25, two cherubim were crafted atop the mercy seat where God himself was said to dwell, where the sacrificial blood would be sprinkled to atone for man's sin on that place in between the throne of God and the broken law of God contained within the ark, right? Then again, on the veil of the temple where God commanded Moses to have images of the two cherubim embroidered. The veil that was torn in two after Christ had shed his blood to once for all atone for the sin of fallen man. Here they are protecting the entrance to the garden along with the flaming sword that turned each way, every direction, guarding this tree. I don't know exactly what this flaming swords look like, probably flaming swords, but I do know that Ezekiel gives us a picture of these cherubim in chapter, his, his chapter 10. Listen to this. Each one had four faces. Each one had four wings. Beneath their wings was the likeness of human hands. And for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces whose appearance I had seen by the river Chebar. Isn't that helpful? Not really. However, one thing that stood out to me in that same chapter is as Ezekiel is describing the glory of the temple entering and then departing, uh, he says this, Moreover, the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. That's an incredible thought to me. The sound of the wings of the cherubim were heard as far as the outer court. Can you imagine this here? The sheer size and awesomeness of these creatures, the, the power of these angelic beings. It must have been incredible to witness. Now here they are on the outskirts of this garden, ready to immediately end whoever might come near it, right? I can only imagine Adam and Eve looking back in tremendous fear and tremendous sorrow at this sight. Yet, with a renewed hope in the possibility of redemption and forgiveness through the glorious grace of their God, right? Right. Amen. Now, I want to close our time together this morning, along with our time in Genesis for the summer, with both a warning and an encouragement to you. My warning goes back to what we mentioned uh, throughout this chapter, this idea that the sovereign God of the heavens and the earth somehow owes us something, uh, or that we are worthy of his grace, that, that we are actually deserving of his divine grace and mercy as if it were a birthright or something, that, that he is somehow obligated to forgive us even if we don't come to him on his terms, repent and believe. This, my friends, is called presumption. Erroneous and misguided presumption. It's rubbish. I wish Lighter were here to hear me say that. It's rubbish. It's false teaching. The reality is we deserve the exact opposite. We deserve only his condemnation and wrath and judgment. We must understand that if we were somehow or, or some way owed some measure of divine favor, if if there were any way of us deserving divine grace, that would negate the very concept of grace to begin with. That would make grace meritorious. We don't have any merit anyhow. 
I emphasize this not to wound anybody. I don't want to wound anybody. I'm part of the we that I'm talking about here. Uh, I say this because it's the most important aspect of our entire lives, so we need to get it right. I say it because I don't want anyone to leave this place with the idea that just because God didn't strike you dead the moment you sinned, that there's not coming a time when those sins won't be paid for in full. As Chris said last week, the truth is they were either paid for in full by Christ at the cross or they will be paid for by you in hell for all of eternity. There's only two options here. And it's true, the vilest offender who truly believes, that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives, but you better be sure that you truly believe. And I want to be clear, unless you hear the call of God through his word, repent of your sin, and truly believe the gospel, like truly believe, not just American evangelicalism, believe. Not just walk an aisle or sign a card or raise a hand as they dim the lights down low, believe. Not just throw a stick in the fire or pray some prayer, believe. Not memorize some spiritual laws, believe. Not just grasp this teaching, this doctrine or that doctrine or go to this church or that church, believe. Not just get baptized and join a Bible study and tithe 10% believe. Not just have good Christian parents and grandparents believe. Not don't cuss or chew or hang out with girls that do believe. (laughs) Not stop watching rated R movies, drinking beer, or wearing skirts above your knees believe. Hopefully not all at the same time. (laughs) I don't know why I said that. And not having Hobby Lobby Bible verses on your living room walls believe. But unless you truly believed by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, you will not be saved. You heard it. You will pay the penalty for your sins in hell. Every last one of them. You will pay the penalty for every sinful thought, every sinful word, every sinful deed on judgment day. My brothers and sisters, I'm not going to lie to you. There's been a great deception that has plagued churches throughout this nation that is just as dangerous as Adam's initial unbelief in the Garden of Eden. I'm going to tell you some real-life experiences next week as we look at Psalm 51. Sneak peek, though. The great deception plaguing the churches of this nation is the damnable lie of cheap grace and easy believism, uh, of presuming upon God that he has some obligation to forgive you and me based off anything that we do, including, of course, an intellectual assent of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, followed by a mere profession of faith. Now, if you feel like you've been conned by this false teaching, you come talk to me after the service. Because a a profession means nothing without a possession. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. One of the most terrifying sections of all of Scripture. 
He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy? In your name cast out demons? In your name do many miracles? I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Lord, didn't I? I joined that church. Is that Lakewood Bible Chapel? They go verse by verse. We sing hymns. I was there. I know this doctrine. I know that doctrine. I I sang in the the music team. I was there every week. I gave my tithes and offering. I preached the word. I did it. I never knew you. The most gut-wrenching words. That's profession and even performance without possession. I don't want that for any of you. How awful would it be to hear those words from Christ? I want you to be saved through the power of his Holy Spirit uh, who will manifest himself through genuine good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. The Spirit who makes us alive together with Christ gives us access to the throne room of God who converts us, who changes us, who makes us new creatures in Christ, men and women who now love the things that he loves. His word, his people, his commandments, his lordship. Truly hate that which he hates, the evil in this world, the sin of this world, the sin in our own hearts. Oh, we hate it. We mourn over our sin. We our own ongoing sin, we beg him to give us the strength and the power to then turn from that sin. Instead of just saying, meh, my Savior, he'll be okay with this. I prayed the prayer, I'm covered in the blood, I'm still a bit carnal, I can now go on living any way I please. Oh Lord, keep us from such damnable presumption. That's what it is. How about you this morning? Have you truly believed in the gospel of grace? Have you, have you truly believed in I pray and trust that you have a sincere and saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Again, if you're not sure, I invite you to come to him in humility and repentance. Ask him to save you of your sin, to cleanse you of all your unrighteousness, to allow you to be one of his children, once an enemy, but now his Precious sons and daughters. He will save you. He is both willing and able to do so today if you would, but hear his voice and come to him this morning. For those who know they truly believe, believers in here, who who truly have his spirit dwelling on the inside of you, I want to encourage you to now sing out to him in worshipful response this morning, to rest in the amazing grace that's been extended to you, to rest in and take shelter in the marvelous, infinite, matchless grace that has been and will continue to be bestowed on you both now and forevermore through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, as Noel comes up and Mina, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Genesis and just the amazing truths that, that you've revealed to us within. We're so grateful for the gospel. We're so grateful to saved by your grace alone. We're so thankful for the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which covers us and fully atones for our sins. Now we have perfect fellowship with you, not only now, uh, but in glory. 
We give you all praise and all glory. In Jesus' name, amen.